Our sermon scripture this morning comes from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along on page 1023 in the Bible, Pew Bible, or it's on the screen behind me. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Holy Spirit, we call to you and ask that you give us eyes that can see and ears that can hear and hearts that can receive for what has been read are words of life, the words of the God who created all things and from his heart he gave us his word that we might know him and might walk in his ways and might know freedom that's found in life with his son, Jesus. So please, set aside this next time for your purposes. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this past summer, we've been making an effort to try to get out into our neighborhood and talk to people, get to know our neighbors, and ultimately talk to them about what matters most, matters of faith, spirituality, and we've had some really amazing conversations. It's genuinely a sacred moment when someone talks to you about who is, what do they think of God? How do they think we know God? Uh, why are we here on this planet? And we're able to share with them the gospel, or at least elements of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's honestly been incredibly life-giving for me. And I think for everyone who's gone out, they've found it likewise to be life-giving and, and energizing for their faith. But one thing I, I began to notice, as, again, I spoke to more and more people who did not profess to be Christians, but were willing to talk about what they believed, one thing I began to notice more and more that I found puzzling was you, you, you didn't run into too many kind of dying the atheists. Most people had some kind of belief in something was out there, but they would kind of cobble together from various worldviews, various religions, a kind of eclectic faith. So maybe they had been exposed to some kind of meditation practice of Buddhism, and they found that very attractive, so they would incorporate that, or maybe they'd run into some kind of Eastern mysticism, they'd kind of incorporate that, or maybe there were parts of Jesus' teachings they liked, so they'd kind of bring that in, and, and this was kind of what they thought, this is what they liked. And it was perplexing to me, because for me, my, my opinion is, look, if, if God is real, like if there is a God who has created everything, then knowing him, there's just no more important question, no more important thing we could do than know who this God is. What is he like? Right, if, if, if there's more than this physical reality that might last forever, like questions of truth about that, massively important. And so it's like, well, if you think Buddhism is true, then be a Buddhist. 
think Islam is true, then be a Muslim. If you think Christianity is true, then be a Christian. But kind of cobbling together, I'm just not sure how this is going to help us arrive at what's true. And then I read a book by a guy named Christian Smith. He's a sociologist. He's actually a Christian sociologist, but he writes, uh, I mean, he's, he's an academic, and he writes a lot about religion in America. And he argues that there's been a shift in how many, if not most, Americans think about religion in the last 50 years. And this helped make sense of so many conversations I'd had in this neighborhood with various individuals. And he said, it's this, most Americans view religion as a personal identity accessory. I'm gonna put that on the screen behind me. We're gonna break this down. A personal identity accessory. Personal identity, that's who we are, right? If I think about what's my identity, well, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, uh, I'm a runner, I'm a reader. These are all things that kind of describe who I am. An accessory is something you add to that, right? So viewing religion as a personal identity accessory means it's kind of something we add to our identity to express ourselves along with all the various other ways that we express ourselves. So again, I'm husband, I'm a uh, father, I'm, you know, I do whatever for work, and then I also have faith. It's a way of expressing myself. Now, if that's true, then yeah, it makes sense you kind of go from worldview religion to worldview religion and, and pull together what makes most sense to you. But there's a couple problems with, with this way of viewing religion. One is that there is no world religion out there that would be content being viewed as a personal identity accessory. So Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha, his teachings, he thought he was teaching things that were universally true across the world. These were eternal truths, not just things that some people might think part of them reflects who they are. That's one problem. No world religion would be okay being defined as a personal identity accessory. But the second problem, this is a more fundamental one, is that a personal identity accessory can't call you to repent. If religion is primarily about reflecting what's already true about me, what I find to be interesting or beautiful or good, it's about bringing things and adding them to my life rather than stepping into a reality where I confront the living God who is what he is, regardless of how I may think of him. Now I'm giving all this for a reason. Um, We're coming to the end of 1 John. And 1 John gives us a summary of the major themes he's been talking about in his letter. And if you remember, John is writing to a church that had gone through a split. There had been false teachers who'd come in and taught all kinds of false teaching, and they'd left, they'd taken much of the church with them. And so John is writing to those who remain, and he gives them these three tests. How do they know what authentic faith is? If you remember, there's, there's the moral test, obedience to Christ and his commandments. There's a social test, loving one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. And third, there's the doctrinal test. Believe that Jesus is the Christ uh, who came in the flesh. But when John, what he's getting at in this text this morning is that when he gave those three tests, he wasn't just pulling kind of three arbitrary things out of the air, like, oh, these are good tests of authentic faith. But he's actually giving three kind of descriptions of faith that actually make a cohesive unit, that kind of merge into one another, that if you try to remove one of these aspects of Christianity, it damages all the rest. They're all together. Again, Jesus Christ is not uh, able to be fit into kind of a personal identity accessory, but he comes and he is our identity. He is our everything. He calls us to repent and come to him and step into his reality. And so I try to get to this kind of interweaving aspect of these three tests in the way I outline our time this morning. 
So our first point is, again, a belief that loves. Again, the first, you know, the first test was this, was this uh, doctrinal test, belief that Jesus is a Christ, but it's not just belief, it's a belief that loves. And then, of course, the second point is that it's a love that obeys, and again, an obedience that believes. And this is a summary of John's burden for this epistle. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and um, read along as I read verse one again in this first point, a belief that loves. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So right there we have, again, this is a belief that loves. This doctrinal test, believe that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh. Of course, to be a Christian, there's things we believe. Uh, there's certain truths we hold to be true that we cling to that are, are necessary. So Jesus is not a Christ. He's not a potential Christ. He's not partly a Christ, but he is the Savior. Christ came and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. We, we claim that to be true. It's necessary to be a Christian, to believe this. There are certain truths that we believe. But to be a Christian isn't just to hold certain truths. It's not just to give our assent to intellectual propositions, right? But it's a belief that loves. Because what happens is that when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, when we have faith in Christ, it puts us into a, a particular relation to God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. When we become Christians, when we place our faith in Christ, God becomes our father. And of course, kids love their father. It's a belief that loves. When I was in college, I was out for a run one evening, and I was able to witness a really beautiful thing. Um, I'm just a normal college kid, and I headphones in, listening to a CD on a walk, or a dick, sorry, disc man. I was gonna say a walk man, that's even older. Uh, so you had to, those are the days where like, if you're gonna be running, you're like, okay, I got, I got one CD I'm gonna pick. Which one is it gonna be? I'm not gonna be able to like, flip around on my phone and find someone else, and then you're like, don't shake it too much, it'll start skipping. These are all things you young people missed. Um, so I'm just out there, I'm like normal college kid, it's around dinner time, and, uh, and I see someone, uh, 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 a guy pull up in his car in front of a house, and he's a dad, and he gets out of his house, and it's him coming home after work, and he opens the door, and bursting out of the front door of his house, there's two little girls, similar age to my kids, just, Daddy, 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 Daddy's home, and they, like, run up to their dad, and he picks them, and he gives them this huge hug, and it was just, I'm running along, it's like, oh, so beautiful, God, give me a wife someday, right, I guess what you think in college. Um, it was a beautiful moment, and I don't know much about that house, but I was just able to see this beautiful moment of kind of domestic harmony, these girls love their daddy, and I, I can... Again, I don't know what that family was like, but I can speculate based on why my own kids love me, though I am an imperfect man. Why do kids love their dad? Because in your dad's arms, there's safety. You know, your dad's gonna care for you and protect you. He's gonna get on the ground and play with you, and although, of course, in a wrestling match, any dad's gonna destroy their kids, he's gonna let you win. Kids love their dads, it's just, part of what we do, and so we're born of God. Ours is never a faith that just holds bare doctrine as it is, but we love our Father in heaven. Now, as I'm describing what, you know, why kids love their dad, I recognize the fact that some of us didn't have a dad, or some of us had dads that were absent or even abusive, because we've never experienced that from our own earthly dads. 
This is the beauty of the gospel, is that we have a heavenly father who loves us in that way, that is analogous to the way that that dad that I saw getting home loved his two girls. But it's only analogous because God the Father loves us far more than any dad could. You know, your, your dad may love you, he may win the award of dad of the planet, but he'll one day get old, he'll get frail, one day you'll take care of him and you'll lose him. But our Father in heaven is with us forever. He's with us to the last breath that we'll breathe. No matter what valley may walk through, he walks with us. And so of course we love him because he's our daddy in heaven. This is a faith, this is a belief that loves. That's the first way that it loves, but we have a belief that loves in another way, and this is one of the burdens of John's heart, which is that it's also a belief that loves our other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it, um, again, this, you know, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and then everyone who loves the Father will also love whoever has been born of him. Now, the way the ESV translates this, there's something that's kind of missed we're gonna bring out using a more archaic word for giving birth to, which is begotten. To beget something is to give birth to something. So just listen to this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been begotten of God, and everyone who loves the begetter loves whoever has been begotten of him. That's how it reads in the Greek. It's the same word. And you kind of, right, a begetter is a father. That's why the ESV says the father, because the begetter doesn't sound nearly as beautiful as the father. What's the idea? Like, we love God who, who is our Father, and so of course we're gonna love whoever else has been born of him. The one who pursued us and chose us, sent his son to die for us, who is with us no matter what, of course we're gonna love whoever, we're gonna love our siblings, our siblings in Christ. If you're born of God, we love God, and we love those who are born of him. When I was in college, again, everything happens when you're in college. Nothing happens after you graduate college. But anyways, I have two stories from college. My parents' Sunday school class back in Pennsylvania, they had this wonderful Sunday school class. They loved it. Until one day, this man in his 50s showed up, and this man was passionate about the Puritans. Now, I love me a good Puritan. They wrote some great stuff. Uh, but this man, like, he, there was, that's all he cared about. And, the, and it wasn't that he was passionate about the Puritans, that he was dogmatic and domineering and dismissive. And so someone would have an opinion and he would just kind of dismiss it. No, let's see what the Puritans think. And it was like, didn't even care what, like, you know, the apostles thought. It was like, well, let's find out what the Puritans thought about this one passage. He was a guy who would really bring in, like, a whole book, and then he would make everyone listen to a long passage. He would literally read it out loud in the middle of Sunday school class, like a five-minute monologue Complete disregard for anyone else. Here was a man who probably thought he loved God. I mean, he certainly loved talking about God. He loved reading great works about God. But there was no evidence that he loved God's children. There's no evidence that he loved the actual other people who were born of him. What was happening there? Well, I mean, again, we can speculate. But I've found that for bookish people, as Christians often are, because we have a Bible, a book, People like to think it's very easy to fall in love with the idea of God and think we're falling in love with God. And there's a, it, it's subtle, right? Because we're supposed to think about God and, and, and God calls us to use our minds and to think great thoughts about God, but we can get to a point where we're, just, we're in love with our idea of God and not so much God himself. And typically this happens 
when we move from a relationship with God that's founded on an IU premise, an actual interaction with the living God to a speaking of God in the third person. God does this, he doesn't do this, and we lose that IU dynamic. Again, to be born of God is to love God who's our Father, but it's also to love whoever's been born of the Father as well. And when we find ourselves thinking that we love God, but yet not loving those who are also born of God, that may be a good sign that we've fallen in love more with the idea of God than with God himself. And I just have one kind of um, uh, application for us from this. This is a very, I mean, First John is very appropriate for where we are in America as Christians are just devouring one another. And there's no better way to put it. Churches are splitting. Christians are disfellowshipping from each other. And it's not over, like, is Jesus the Christ? It's over secondary issues. And so here's my, here's my pleading with us as Christians. is dear brother or sister, show your brothers and sisters in Christ at least as much grace as you would show your biological siblings. Right, what would it take for you to cut off your own brother or sister? Right, no one ever says, man, I saw that tweet, I saw who you voted for, you're disinvited from Thanksgiving. Like, no, they're my family. Blood is thicker than water, they say dumb things, I love them. Like, what would my brother have to do for me to say I'm done with you? He'd probably have to murder someone. But we're like, oh, that Christian voted for the wrong person, that Christian believes this, I'm done. Let's show at least as much grace to our brothers and sisters whom we will worship with for all eternity as we do to our own biological relatives who we won't be uh, in the same relationship with for all eternity. So, this is, a belief, this is a belief that loves. It's not just a belief that affirms things, but one that moves us to love our Father and to love those born of God. Second point, it's not just a belief that loves and that it feels certain things about God and people, but it's, it's a love that obeys. Verse two to three. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. John gets pretty close to just saying, look, loving God and obeying God is the same thing. And of course, they're not the same thing. John speaks in these stark contrasts as a teaching tool. Everything is light or dark. It's one or the other. But for all practical purposes, they are the same. If we love God, we'll obey him. And if we don't obey God, it's evidence that we don't really love God. Now, what's interesting is that John kind of contradicts some pretty common assumptions we tend to have about love. So for instance, clearly love and obedience do not contradict each other. We tend to think of love as like just, you know, spontaneous expression. It's, it's, it's just an overflow of your heart and at the other extreme is duty, obedience, obligation. And, 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 and you can't have them together. Like if you're doing something out of obedience or obligation, we can't really love. And if you're loving, it requires a freedom to not be acting out of obligation. Of course, that can't be the case because John is telling us if we love God, then we'll be obedient. And this is echoing, echoing sorry, the commands of Jesus himself who said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And it also doesn't even make sense of our own reality. If you've been following, again, the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, 
One of the, 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 the long-time stories has been the differences in morale between the Russian soldiers and the Ukrainian soldiers. So, second. So when Russia first invaded, I mean, the Russian soldiers, they have to obey their commanding officers. They're acting under obligation, duty, obedience. And at first, the Russians told their troops, well, it's just a military exercise, and that was clearly not the case when you go on to another sovereign state. And they're telling them, well, we're going to you know, rescue the Ukrainians from this Nazi regime. They're, we're liberating them. They're going to welcome us with open arms. But when the Ukrainians were literally laying themselves in front of the tanks, it's like, well, I don't think they want us here. And so all of a sudden you have the Russian troops who have to obey their commanders. That's what you do when you're a soldier. But they're just acting out of obligation. And so the morale is low, incredibly low. But you compare that to the Ukrainian soldiers who are massively outgunned, massively outmanned, who are watching their own countryside get blown to smithereens, yet their morale is incredibly high. What's different? I mean, the Ukrainian soldiers are also acting out of obedience. The Ukrainian soldier has to go where his commander says him and where he sends him and stays there as long as his commander says so. And the difference is that the Ukrainians are acting out of love as well. A love for their own homeland. The soil they fight on is their own country. They're fighting for their wives and their children. They're literally fighting for their homes for the future of their children to be able to grow up sovereignly independent. And so yeah, there's a duty and an obligation and obedience, but it's because they love something greater than themselves. And this is how it is with God. Loving God and obeying God are not somehow mutually contradictory because when we come to God, we come to one who is far greater than us. And he is our father and so of course we're his children, we love him. But when we come to things greater than us and we love them, we obey him as well. In a pure relationship with a friend, right, like you can love a friend and obedience wouldn't make sense, but when we come to one who is greater than us, then to love him means that we, we obey him as well. So clearly love and obedience do not contradict each other. But interestingly enough, this also tells us that obedience is not necessarily legalism. It's not very exciting to talk about obedience. And, and, and we have some legitimate concerns when we talk about obedience that we don't want to become Pharisees, right? Like Jesus had a lot of harsh word for Pharisees. But obedience is not necessarily legalism. It can be when we obey because we want to impress our brothers and sisters and show how pious we are when we Instagram our quiet times for a cup of coffee. Look out. You know, or we do it because we want God to smile upon us. Or we not smile upon us, we want to earn his favor stand on our own righteousness. Yes, it can be kind of legalistic, but as Christians, we obey not to impress people or not because we think God's not gonna love us. It's, it's because we know he, he loves us and we love him in return. And, and because we love our Father, like, I wanna do what he says, whatever it may be. That's why obedience can never be legalism because it flows from our love for God. All right, so husbands, why do you why do you love your wives and lay down your life for them? It's because you love Jesus. And you'll do what he says. Similarly, wives, why do you submit to your husbands? Oh, it's because you love Jesus. And you'll do whatever he says. Children, why do you obey your parents when you, of all people, know how imperfect they are? It's because you love Jesus and you want to do what he says. 
Christian, why do you fight tooth and nail, lust and envy and pride? It's because you love Jesus and anything that keeps you from being with him, you'll do what it takes. We obey because we love. It's a love that obeys. It's how it expresses itself. And in the end, the truth of the matter is whether or not we choose to serve and obey Christ, we will serve and obey something. We'll give our lives, ourselves to something. It's how we're built as humans, as part of our DNA. And the promise is that we give ourselves to Christ. He is a gentle master. That's what it says at the end of verse three. His commandments are not burdensome. If we give ourselves to other things, we'll find at the end that they were bitter taskmasters. My dad one time told me a story before I was born. I think my older sister was just very little. My dad was working in a bank, and it was a kind of a bank had a kind of culture where it was expected that you would stay late, so you would stay seven, eight every night. Um, but he wanted to get ahead. He wanted to be promoted, and so he's doing what it takes, and he's starting to feel conflicted because he's not He's missing my sister growing up. And finally, one Friday night, he goes into his boss's office. His boss had this nice corner office overlooking downtown Rochester. It's late at night, it's dark out, and his boss is just kind of staring out the window. My dad's like, hey, what, what you doing? What are you thinking about? And the boss turns around in his seat. He points at a picture on his desk of him standing next to a 12-year-old girl. He says, see that girl? That's my daughter. She's graduating high school today. Sorry, tomorrow. She's graduating high school tomorrow, and I just realized I can't think of a single thing I've done with her since that picture was taken. And she's graduating high school. This was a senior executive at a large bank. I'm guessing if he did not feel that he served anybody. He was the boss. But truthfully, he'd given his life to his work, to his career ambition, he had served a master, and at the end, he found it to be a very bitter pill. The promise is Christ asks everything of us, guys. It's, it's not a, a, it's something we add to our like social media tagline. He asks for everything, but he's, he's a gentle master. We'll find that when we give everything, that in the end, it's a light burden, and it gives rest for our souls. Yet if we give ourselves anything else, it will turn out to be harsh and bitter in the end. Again, this is a love that obeys. John is telling us that you know, Christian discipleship, we can't pick and choose. It's, it, 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 it takes everything. It's, it's, a, it's a belief, yes, that Jesus is the Christ, but it's a belief that also loves God and his other children. It's also a love that obeys. And then finally, John brings it full circle, but yet it's a it's an obedience that believes. This is our third and final point. Follow along verse four to five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? What's interesting, what John does here is he's describing what's most essential about the Christian faith, he bookends it with faith. Look at verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Then verse five. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, obedience and love are massively important, and at the end of the day, they flow into one another, and we can't, we can't just pick, I'm gonna obey but not love, or I'm gonna believe but not obey, they all, but faith is still first and foremost, everything flows from faith to faith. And what's interesting is John makes a pretty startling statement in verse four. I don't know if you saw it. Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. That sounds like something you might hear in like an inspirational speech at like a graduation, right? Graduation, you know, no one treats graduation like a dirge. It's like a happy occasion. And so this graduation speaker is like, you guys are the best and the brightest. You've worked so hard to get here. Your internship experiences have prepared you. Go out and change the world. Overcome the world. You can do it. You've proved it. Go get them. And what's going to overcome the world is your hard work. No. Your talent. No. Faith. Huh? How does that make sense? Isn't faith more passive? Isn't faith like what we experience when we have our quiet times and we're by ourselves reading the Bible and it's just my private communion with God? But he says, no. You've overcome the world, and what is it to overcome the world? It's our faith. Now, we've got to be careful. Again, I want, I want to draw that out, because we can read that, and just our eyes glaze, and we're like, yeah, 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 and that's like such a shocking, counterintuitive thought that it's our faith that would overcome the world, but let's just be clear. John is not saying, look, just have faith in anything. You hear that all the time. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe something. It's better to believe in something than nothing. It's like, no, it's not true. If you believe in the tooth fairy when you're 50, maybe better not to believe. No, it's not, it's not just faith. It's who we have faith in. It's the object of our faith. And John says it earlier, right? Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's why we'll overcome the world because our faith is in the risen Christ. And in fact, the text after this that we'll look at next week, he goes and describes the object of our faith. This is he who came by water and blood. Christ came in life and death to give his life for us that we might live truly. It's because our faith is in him. That's why it overcomes the world. But also, there's an element here where as what we believe and the significance of it and the weight of it and the magnitude of it, as it begins to really dawn on us, it does change the world. When it begins to dawn on us that heaven came to earth to seek out the lost, that the perfect God took our sin, every, every bit of it, every, every, okay, whatever guilt you bring with you this morning, whatever you're, you're regretting from this past week or the past year or the past 10 years, like God himself bore it. And if he did it, it no one needs to, to add anything to it. That the kingdom of God has really come. And that means is that when we gather together, it's not just an interesting service and hopefully some interesting, inspiring preaching, but it's like God is present his kingdom's arrived. Every wrong is being righted in our presence. The broken are being healed. The fatherless and motherless are being adopted. That God has given you his spirit, the eternal spirit that existed from all time, who was able to reverse death itself, right? Tells us that there's a spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. He now lives in you. And last of all, that Jesus 
the divine king. <laughs> He's picked you and me to be his servants of all people. He's picked us to continue out the mission that he began. There's, a, there's humor in there. But it's, it's not a personal identity accessory. It's never something we just add. We pick and choose what we like. I like this part of the Bible, I'm gonna take it. This part, not so much. I like to give this part to Christ, but not this, no. It's everything. He will be our identity. Jesus Christ has come after each one of you individually. You didn't find him, he's come to you. And he didn't come to you through a blast email. Whoever's interested, he didn't hang a door knocker on every house in the neighborhood. No, he showed up at your door and he knocked. And he kept knocking until you answered. Or maybe you haven't answered yet. And he said, come and follow me. I have a purpose for your life. It'll take everything you have. You're gonna have to repent and give up everything. But you'll find that I'll give you everything in return. If you're a kid, I have to ask you, who are you going to follow? Can't, your parents can't choose for you. You'll have to choose. I want you to know that there is nothing better than life with Christ. It'll cost you everything, but there's nothing better. If you're a student, I want you to know Jesus wants more than just your studies. He wants more than just chapel time. He wants more than your internships. He wants the wellsprings of your heart. He wants your future. If you're working, Jesus he wants more than your tithe. He wants more than Sunday morning. He wants your weekdays. He wants you to work at your job as if working for the king of kings, knowing that nothing you do is worthless because you do it for the king who's called you to that. There is no job that is pointless when it's done for the king of kings. When you log in on Monday morning or you walk into your workplace, you go in the name of the king If you're retired, Jesus doesn't only want the decades of service you've given him in the past, but he wants your now. He wants however many days or months or years he has left for you on this earth. He wants the remaining time to be the most faithful and fruitful and God-filled time of your whole life. And at the end of the day, it's a simple invitation. Again, to become a Christian requires all of us, but it begins with faith and it ends with faith. And the simple invitation is, oh, dear, dear, dear brother, sister in Christ, or if you will simply believe Jesus is the Christ, and repent of a faith that compartmentalizes and tries to offer part. No, Jesus, you may have all of it, whatever that may look like. 
You don't need money to do this. This is what I love. It's a simple invitation. You don't need money. You need power. You don't need even life experience. And, and faith, even the size of a mustard seed, will overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we will be a church that offers all of ourselves up because you are worthy. You've called us to follow you. You've called us into danger and adventure and peace. Oh, peace. To know the God of the universe is our Father. Nothing is in vain. May we leave your presence this morning knowing that. Knowing that you are a gentle taskmaster and in you we find rest for our souls. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.